Good evening, Resisters. Today is Tuesday, February 15th, and you're listening to the Wide Shot webcast on Resistance Radio Network. I'm your host, Keelan Balderson, and you can check all of my articles and videos at wideshirt.co.uk. And of course, for everything Resistance Radio, check out resistradio.com. Well, I hope everyone likes the new Wide Shirt webcast video version that I've uh, been doing on YouTube. If you haven't seen that yet, please check it out. At, um, it's youtube.com forward slash Wide Shirt UK. Basically, uh, uh, a video news kind of truth show, very much inspired by James Corbett of the Corbett Report. I kind of like his straight-laced news format, so I did a bit of that, and then I've added a bit of my own analysis at the end in a segment. This week, I talked about 9-11 and some of the problems with blaming everything on Israel. I'll say everything, because there is some Israeli involvement in 9-11 dancing Israelis, all that kind of stuff. But we don't want to talk about that today. And I also cut up a few minutes of each of the host shows on Resistance Radio to hopefully promote them in a different format through the YouTube in case some people don't listen to all of the shows or whatever. So I should be doing that on a weekly basis on Sundays, and I'll be trying to keep it to 30 minutes long, whereas this show is one hour. <clears throat> I'm actually going to do something a bit different tonight. Um, if some of you watch the or listen to the George Anton show, um, what he does is actually records himself while he's doing the radio show and then puts it on YouTube. And that's what I'm doing uh, this week, a little trial run. What I'm also doing is recording the chat room with a screen recorder. And on the YouTube, I'll put that beside my, my video of me so people can get a full experience of the Resistance Radio gang. I know there's always a lot of good banter in there, so lots of good stuff. Um, tonight, I do have a very special guest coming on to speak to us, and that's uh, Neil Kiernan of V Radio. Um, that's v-radio.com. Uh, he'll be coming on to give uh, the, the sort of third view on, on possible solutions to the to the current economic problems. Um, we've talked about the Austrian school and free markets with Graham Sharkey. Um, we've had a LaRouche perspective, even though there's a bit of a language barrier. We had the LaRouche perspective, um, Glass-Steagall, all that kind of stuff. So it will be interesting to get another opinion from Neil, who obviously supports the resource-based economy, which is pushed through the Zeitgeist films and the Venus Project. But before we get to Neil, I just quickly want to talk about, well, actually, I could get to um, some of these 7-7 seven, seven stories. Um, obviously, Janaid, the Western intelligence asset that was running the terror training camp that Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the alleged lead bomber of 7-7, seven, seven, attended. That all came out the other day. I was actually contacted by Russia Today of you know, all people asking me to come on to talk about that, which is a little bit overwhelming. Um, they did ask me to come on to talk about Iran at one point and, and this trumped-up nuclear threat that Iran supposedly has against the West. Um, you know, I have no idea how they find me. I'm not that big on YouTube and stuff. My guess is they Google the, the key terms and my website comes up and they read the articles and think, hmm, maybe we'll get him on. 
the first time I actually bottled it because I just the the idea of being on TV kind of scared me. But this time I replied and said I will go on and talk about this seven seven thing. So I'm not going to talk about it today because I might actually be on Russia today, and I, I want to leave it for that. I don't want to burn out and then feel like I'm repeating myself on Russia today. So hopefully that will be going down in, in the next day or so. If it doesn't go down for whatever reason, I'll do do my own video and, and get all the information out there. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll just take a sip of water. But we before we get to Neil, I just quickly want to talk about a story I did at the end of last week about Prince Charles. Um, basically, the title is Prince Charles Attacks Climate Deniers Once Again. Lovely stuff. I'll paste that into the chat. Um, and this was Prince Charles in, in Brussels talking about how climate deniers need to look their children in the eye. And then he had a go at conspiracy theorists and on all that, you know, typical um, green rhetoric. But first off, the irony wasn't lost on me that Prince Charles of England, of the of the, of the British monarchy, to sit in the headquarters of the EU superstate with the EU Parliament. That kind of made me chuckle. Um, one of the main vehicles that's stripping Britain of its sovereignty. And he's happy to sit there and, and, and join them. But of course, in reality, this, this patriotism is simply a tool to keep the masses in check. The royals have always been for world empire in different forms. Now it seems like they're happy to just sit on their wealth. They've done everything they need to do. They've given everything over to the bankers. They have this this sort of political system under the disguise of uh, democracy they're going to be safe if all this shit hits the fan. So, you know, he's not going to be bothered sitting there in the European super state. But I'm digressing. Um, the main theme of Charles's speech was that the Green Movement need to repackage their message. He said, um, for too long, environmentalists have tended to concentrate on what people need to do. If we are constantly told that living envir um, environmentally friendly lives means giving up all that makes life worthwhile then it is no surprise that people refuse to change. We need to make it cool to have less stuff. <laughs> you couldn't have a worse spokesperson about telling the people that they need to use less stuff than a prince. That is absolutely ridiculous. Do you think the royal family are going to be giving up all of their stuff anytime soon? Are they going to be moving to a, a one-room eco shed in the middle of the woods? I don't think so. And when I was researching this article, the funny thing was, it seems the media are trying to portray Prince Charles as this, this great environmentalist, because he's converted one of his many cars to run on wine. That's right, one of Charles's sports cars runs on wine. I don't really know what kind of message that's, that's sending us. I mean, should get down the cash and carry and buy a few litres of Lambrini to fill up our metros. I'm, I'm not really sure what they're trying to imply there, but they're trying to make him out to be this, this big green guy. Listen, he flies around in private jets. He has drivers take him, you know, everywhere in Rolls Royces. You know, was Charles driving his wino car when he was ambushed during the student protests? No, I don't think he was, was he? 
And essentially, this article goes through each of his points and debunks them. You know, he says, there's been warming since the rise of industrialism. But if you ignore the discredited hockey stick graph and go back further, the warming trend started long before the Industrial Revolution. If you look at the graph, it just appears to be a natural upswing since the mini ice age. You know, a leveling out of what was super cold. We're, no, we're now going back to normal. For the past decade, there hasn't been any statistically significant warming. It's, there's been no warming, basically, for 10 years. It went up in 1998, hit a peak, and it's been going up and down within that temperature ever since then without an average of actually increasing. He says there's a population crisis, which is, of course, somewhat true in certain parts of the world, mainly the third world. But that's just the way the, the, the Earth has been allocated. And all of the evidence, of course, shows that when a nation industrialises, population levels fall. That's how it went with the West. But under the Green Movement, of course, the Third World can't industrialise because they're being forced to take this expensive and inefficient green energy, all this bureaucracy... And the elite have never wanted them to industrialise. Uh, Memorandum 200 by Henry It's all about stopping the third world from becoming competition to the elite. And then if we look at the UN's own numbers, they state that population will actually become stable by 2020. And after 2050, will actually decline rapidly. And in the West, we're going to get to a point where more people um, die than are born. We've got an ageing population. And I'll just read the final part of the paragraph. Uh, Prince Charles can attack climate sceptics all he wants, but he's the one using absurdities, pseudoscience and deception. For a one degree rise in global temperature over the last hundred years, we must tax a life-giving gas that makes up only 3% of the atmosphere, destroy the middle class and lower classes, and exterminate a percentage of the world's population, who's more dangerous? So there's the Prince Charles and his green population elitist agenda. Uh, but I think that's enough of all that. It's time to jump over to our guest this evening, Neil of V Radio. I'll just check the switchboard. I believe that's Neil. Where's the unmute? Hello, Neil, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yep, loud and clear. You're on the air, sir. All right, excellent. Nice to be here. You've had quite a busy couple of weeks getting into the thick of it, debating the Venus Project, so uh, we appreciate <laughs> you taking your time out to come on this show. No, it's no problem at all, man. As I said earlier, we, we indie radio hosts need to stick together, even if we don't always agree about everything. If we want there to be an alternative media, then we have to support it. Absolutely. So uh, just just start by giving people uh, your name, your web address, what you do, etc. Well, my name is Neil Kiernan. Um, you guys can check out my radio show at v-radio.org. Um, I have lots of archives there, different like guests that I've had, things of that nature. Um, it's it's mostly a Venus Project-oriented radio show, Zeitgeist Movement-oriented radio show, but 
I have a lot of guests on that are not necessarily directly related to that. I have a lot of uh, documentary filmmakers on my show. In fact, my next big show is going to have Peter Joseph from Zeitgeist, Ben Stewart from Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda, and Roger Stahl from Militainment Incorporated all on the same show. Wow, that's that, quite a mix. That's coming up on the 20th. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can also, um, uh, you know, like I said, you can go to my archives, check out my uh, my past shows there on Blog Talk Radio. You can also go to my must-see TV list, which is a, basically just a list of uh, documentaries that are free to watch on the Internet that people should check out, you know, even if you're not into the resource-based economy model. And um, I am also an executive editor for the Zeitgeist Newsletter, I work very closely with the Venus Project. I've spent a great deal of time talking with Jacques and Roxanne. And um, uh, I've been a radio host for the movement for a long time. That's I mean, I'm, I'm also, I guess, a moderator on the forums. I don't really think that matters. but <laughs> Well, good stuff, good stuff. Um, the main reason I brought you on tonight wasn't really to grill you as such. I think maybe some of the other hosts might want to do that at another time. But um, <laughs> I've been doing a series of shows looking at solutions to the economic collapse. Um, I had Graham Sharkey, an Austrian economist, on. Then I had a, a supporter of the LaRouche movement on who said free markets meant fascism, so, you know, two completely opposite views. Personally, uh, on any of these solutions, I'm not 100% convinced. I, I don't profess to be an expert on any of them. So I'm just looking to give everyone a fair crack. So I thought a, a third opinion from yourself would give a, a well-rounded view on things. All right. Well, I'm, I'd be happy to give you my position. Um, there are, I mean, there are other people also you might want to consider. Uh, Patty Shannon from the Socialist uh, World Socialist Movement's a pretty cool guy. I don't know if you've ever seen Capitalism and Other Kid stuff. And um, I had him on my show a while ago. We don't agree on everything, but he was definitely a nice guy. Um, I think that a, a lot of people are not aware that you know socialism is not automatically fascism. So um, <laughs> talk to him right. sometime. But um, other than that, um, I guess the, I would. You just kind of want me to go into a spiel, or do you have questions? Um, well, yeah, I've got a few questions here. Before we actually get into some of the different solutions and, and the Venus Project itself, maybe you could go over some of the problems you see with the current system. I know most of us will agree that it's obviously failed, but I, I think it's still worth hammering home. So, w what's your sort of overview of this debt black hole that we currently live in? Well, I think that a, a large part of the problem that we have is that the the medium of exchange that we use, that is, that is, you know, it is money, is essentially a, a tool for power for anybody who can manage to get more of it than everybody else. Um, I think that it's kind of ingrained itself in every level of society. You can see money's impact on everything, including uh, politics. It's it's honestly an insult to our intelligence to ever believe that any form of democracy or, or even democratic republic will ever work if we have people who can privately own the media and use it for whatever they want. Um, I was just watching out Fox Rupert Murdoch's War in Journalism before I came on here. Um, and uh, it's also impossible that we're ever really going to expect anything short of whatever is profitable to take place in this world. No problem will ever be solved unless money can be made from fixing it. And in fact, if fixing something would cause somebody else to lose money, you'll find that it won't be fixed. Um, and, I mean, I know that there are a lot of other issues about it. You know, it's obviously there's corruption, things of that nature. But, it, you know, you can almost, if you peel away the layers, you can almost always find money at the bottom of the majority of things that go on. I mean, for example, there was, you know, there was oppression of women. So, you know, they had the feminist movement. But, you know, it was in the best interest of certain people who make money to see women in the workplace. 
um, you know, uh, a lot of other problems like war. Uh, there's a really good little booklet you can read called Addicted to War. It's a comic book, and that guy goes over the many billions of different ways that money influ- in fa- you know, impacts war, causes war, how like every major war that the United States itself has been involved in was, was essentially done by lobbyists, and that goes all the way back to the Native American uh, Indian Removal Act. There were people who were powerful in the in the in certain industries, and they wanted the land the natives were on, so they went on their propaganda campaigns of painting the the red Indians as you know evil savages that were out to get us. Does that sound familiar? You know, and then justify <laughs> to go on over there and take their stuff. Um, and what I'm afraid of is that you know, as much as I've heard you know capitalists say that all uh, centrally planned or leftist systems, as they put them, are, are go- you know inevitably lead to evil. Um, I haven't really seen anything that would lead me to the conclusion that capitalism is any different in that regard. And what ends up being the same in both systems is the use of money. As soon as you have that commodity, you know, and, and you begin to allow yourself to think that certain people should be able to own things that are required for survival, you run into trouble. I mean, just wait until they figure out a way to declare air, private property. Right. Don't breathe well, my air. With that, with that said, um, one of the more popular arguments put forward is that the solution to all of this is is smaller government, you know, government keeping their nose out and a true free market system based on what people really want and what they need. You know, we have the, the Ron Paul revolution. It seems to be the, the, the big alternative out there right now. But what are some of your worries and misgivings about the free market system? I know you did a massive debate with Stefan Molyneux, but maybe you can just get into some of your main um sort of opinions about the free market. Yeah, that is actually something, because Stefan and I are planning on doing another show at some point that will come up, but um, I didn't really put him in the hot seat because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to discuss our system. But um, one of the things that I, you know, give me an example of like uh, anarcho-capitalists. They believe in in the free market taken to the absolute extreme. And one of the things that anarcho-communists point out is that if you have property rights, and invariably you're going to need force in some fashion to protect that property, which then, of course, leads to the recreation of the state. Um, when it comes to the, just the free market on its own, let's say you're going with a minarchist system, which is what I was when I was a libertarian, I was a minarchist, um, you're still going to run into situations where unless you make it absolutely illegal for uh, politicians to be bribed, because that's what a campaign contribution is. It's a bribe. Um, unless you're going to make it illegal for that to happen, well, then you're never going to have uh, elected officials who are ever going to represent anybody who doesn't have money. Um, and they, they of course, say, well, that wouldn't have to happen, but I'm afraid it's just kind of naive to think that we can ever have any kind of real representation that's not directly in the pocket of the rich as long as there is money. Um, now, of course, then people would say, well, then let's just get rid of the state. Well, when it, when if you're going to go as far as an anarcho-capitalist, will you get rid of the state? Then you you end up in a really messed up situation because then money buys everything. It's fascism to the highest bidder. You ask these people what they would replace the state with, they say, well, everybody should own their own security forces and they should hire their own military forces and everything should be done by mercenaries. And I'm like, oh, okay, so we just throw a lever, get rid of the state, and then all the rich people who pretty much are already running the world now, they don't even have to pretend that they're trying to take care of us. They can just, you know, well, own everything and therefore rule everything. They don't have to pretend anymore. They can just do it. Um, and those are the – that's where uh, you know, I feel we go wrong with anarcho-capitalism in of itself. Um, there are also certain things that just in uh, free market capitalism in of itself, the Austrian school 
that I don't believe that you can get away with completely deregulating. Uh, and in fact, ironically, one of the reasons I was watching Outfoxed and uh, Orwell rolls in his grave is another really good one. They talk about how the more we deregulated the media, uh, the more Rupert Murdoch bought of it. And now that man has more power over right. who gets elected than the average American citizen ever will. <clears throat> and that's why certain things need to be regulated. I, I hate to say it, at least in any kind of monetary system, uh, the power over the media is just too much for any one person to just be able to, you know, to handle. But of course, the deregulators all said, "No, no, everything will do better if you just deregulate it. The free market will fix that." As if the free market can fix that. Once you start to understand that um, advertising has gone well beyond just, "Hey, I have a cool product, check it out," and into literally brainwashing. Um, several good films about that: Consuming Kids, uh, Psy War, The Century of Self. They all lay it out very directly that. Um, advertising now, I mean, they're literally putting brain, like they're doing brain scans of people while they're watching commercials. They're 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 noticing the effects that certain sounds have, certain colors. Um, they're they're doing videotapes where they're they're videotaping your rapid eye movements to kind of try to get a scientific determination over what you know elements to use, and and then they expect you as a consumer to try to be the arbiter of that because that's the the other major the flaw that I see is that they think that the consumer will fix everything. You know, well, if the, if those people become despotic, well, then you know people just won't buy their products. I'm like, well, I'm afraid Walmart proves that that's just not the case at all. Um, the idea that you know the consumer will just refuse to buy cheap products because of that person's business practices, at least on a massive scale, is really naive. And the more that an economy crashes, the more people are forced to buy those kinds of products from those companies. How can you possibly compete with somebody who's willing to uh, automate everything? or to turn to sweatshop labor. You can't, unless you're also willing to turn to sweatshop labor. And that's essentially um, a, one of the major points, really, um, in addition to the idea that they believe that um, free marketeers believe that technological unemployment is a fallacy. Uh, they tend to quote from books that were written in the 40s, uh, where they were quoting from, in turn, economists from as early as the 1700s on why technological employment is not real. And I point out to them that uh, the state of technology, even when Ludwig von Mises, you know, 50 years ago was making statements, is so different. The world's not even close to being the same. You and I wouldn't even be able to have this conversation in the world that Ludwig von Mises lived in. Um, his his worldview at that point is, is just not relevant anymore. Uh, what technology is capable of now, in comparison to what it was then, you're it's you're you're talking about like the difference between us now and Star Trek. You know, it, it's huge the amount of changes that we've made in this world. And when you consider that, you know, because I'll give you another example, in an argument with a free market economist, uh, economist once, and, and he told me, well, because I was talking about outsourcing, and he's like, well, you know, it's it's historically proven that that uh, wages will increase when people increase their productivity. And I'm like, like, he acted like it was a law of physics or something, that this just must happen. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's just ridiculous. They wouldn't be going to these third world countries to get, you know, people to work for $1.50 an hour if it was because of productivity, and they certainly aren't giving them raises just because they're working harder. The idea now is to make your workforce as desperate as you possibly can so that they will accept whatever scraps you throw off the table at them. And that's the way that they want everything to work. And I'll tell one more well, story. On, on the, um, just quickly, on, on the ahead. concept of work, um, you know, if we're in a society that technology has been allowed to advance, we've got this this Venus Project Society, machines are doing a lot of the work. You know, it's my belief that not everybody is a great mind. Not everybody is create, creative. I think everybody can be nurtured to be that way. But mm -hmm. 
Won't there simply be large numbers of people who, who will be bored, who won't have anything to do, who can't contribute, who don't need to contribute? What would, what would we do with those people? Or well, is that I, well, first of all, no, first of all, I would ask you, um, do you think that work is not boring? I know I've never gone to a job and felt like I was more entertained. That, that's, I, a, oh, that's fair, I suppose. But what, say the jobs are all taken, my point is, you have the, the creative people, the people inventing things, the people that are, are super uber intelligent and are, you know, contributing to this great technological system. What about the people that probably just didn't get there and uh, are sat in their beautiful looking homes? What, what do they do? I mean, what would you what would your answer be to that? Well, um, I think that part of the reason why people anticipate that it would be boring is because they're accustomed to a world where certain things are outside of their reach because of the price tag. Um, I, for one, know that I'd probably do a lot more time traveling in a resource-based economy. I'd do a lot more time working on the things I'm interested in. There's a lot of things I'd like to do that I simply can't do because the money system doesn't allow it. Um, they always tell us that it's supposed to give us freedom of choice, but it doesn't really work out that way. It gives you freedom of choice to try to find a way to be useful to somebody who has something you want, even if it's just money. Um, and if I can't find a way to do that, well, then I guess I just get to die. Um, that's actually uh, one of the points I tend to bring up to people is that they, they always talk about how they feel that any uh, centrally planned system, whether it be communism, socialism, whatever, um, will lead immediately to death camps and gulags and things of that nature. They tend to leave out the fact that the capitalist system does exactly the same thing, but far more efficiently, um, because they don't need to build concentration camps and gulags. If you can't find a way to be useful to the people at the top, well, then you just starve. You know, the, ask all the people that are starving on this planet about, about exactly that. They're not being rounded up in camps, but they're they're definitely still going to die, and slowly over long periods of time, and they're going to watch their children die. Um, I don't really think that's much better solution than death camps. I'm pretty confident that we need to come up with a system that works for everyone. Um, and I guess uh, on the issue of boredom, uh, what motivates people, you will find actually there's a very interesting uh, MIT study about that that Daniel Pink brings up in his uh, RSA Animate. You can look at it. It's uh, you know, the surprising science of what motivates people or something to that effect where they talk about what motivates people to innovate and to do better things. So... Um, you know, take a look at that information and be surprised because I know that the vast majority of boredom I've ever had was because I was limited by the monetary system as far as to what I was able to do. Well, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Um, just on the resource-based economy then, I mean, um, this is your chance to just explain to people what is a res resource-based economy. Is it is it rationing of resources? Is it sharing out equally? What What's the core principle there for people that don't know who might not have um, you know, looked into the Venus Project. Well, I'd say so. Some people said something like, you know, sharing equally. I, I don't think that they're they're having a very realistic goal. What's necessary is that we all have equal opportunity to get access to certain things. That's what we call strategic access. There are already people right now, for example, investing in what they call car banks, where you know there are cars that are owned by all the people collectively in said car bank. They get to use a car. And then when they're finished with it, they're done, and then, you know, they basically get to – they tell the, the service where the car was left, and then that allows somebody else to go pick it up and use it when they need it. And that's an example of strategic access. Now, mind you, we would do that far more efficiently. But in most cases, the vast majority of the junk that people have in their lives, uh, they don't really usually use it every day. Um, you know, like for some of us, maybe we use our computer every day or maybe we use our television every day. But those are things that are pretty easy to deal with. 
Do we all need to have our own golf clubs? Do we all need to have our own vehicle that maybe we drive on average? Most people are in the car maybe a half hour a day, maybe an hour. You know, do we all need to have, you know, a lot of the other junk that we've been told, you know, are essentially brainwashed to believe is an extension of our freedom that unless we have this, you know, we're not, a, you know, we're not a valuable person. That's what fashion is all about. That's what the social well, where, where would personalization about. come into that? For example, you know, I might buy a car and I might want to put a big sticker on it because I'm cool and I've got this big sticker. I mean, uh, how, well, how would somebody, that... you want to own a car, we don't care. You know, and, and in fact, we figure that what would happen is, like, you know, people who want to do that as a hobby, maybe the people who really care about their cars, you know, would, would do so. You know, if that's what you want to do, then you can do it. But but society doesn't need to be designed um, in such a way that absolutely everybody has their own car. But if you want to have your own car, nobody's going to stop you. The idea, though, is, is that we design an infrastructure to make sure that everybody has access to vehicles. And obviously, if you have claimed one as your own, then you can keep it. Um, well, something I've heard a lot of people bring up, uh, you know, about the Venus Project, we have this quote-unquote supercomputer method of, of databasing the world's resources, allocating things. Something a lot of people say is surely that could be utilized by the free market to get a fairer gauge on, on supply and demand. What's your opinion on, opinion on that? Do we need to take it all the way, or would you be willing to test that in action? I'm sorry, could you repeat exactly what it is that we would be testing? I, I didn't get that. Um, within the free market, if we used these, well, maybe you ask me what these supercomputers exactly do, but in the free market, can't they be utilized to better allocate the resources within the market rather than going all the way into a Venus Project system? Well, as soon as you involve a computer, and as long as anything's even regulating anything at that point, it's not a free market. Um, it would be different at that point. Now, I mean, I guess, are you suggesting perhaps that a market system could be used within a resource-based economy to allocate who gets what, or? I guess, like, just say you had a central computer of all the world's resources, and there was certain regulations, but within a market system, people could go look at these resources and see, well, you know, we've only got this much oil left. Maybe, you know, we should do this or whatever. Um, well, uh, I guess to try to answer your question, um, I, I, I don't really understand how that would function. It, it's, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. Um, if you have all of the resources um, and you have a strong grasp over, like, how much there is, uh, then you allocate those as would be scientifically prudent. Um, if there is an absence of a certain resource, and this is another major difference, um, rather than declaring um, war on another country that has resources that you want, you declare war on the scarcity itself, and you use science to determine ways of replacing that item. Jock usually gives the example of when the Germans were embargoed during World War II, they developed synthetic rubber. Um, the example I usually give is uh, when, you know, like there was a company recently that just developed synthetic gasoline that they think will cost about $1.50 a gallon. Um, essentially, you use the resources that were previously used on trying to steal other people's resources um, instead on trying to replace the need for them or to use science to find ways where you don't need them at all anymore. Um, those are advantages that a market system doesn't really have because a market system is dependent upon profit 
And therefore, it is also dependent on ensuring that any technology that is released does not interfere with profit. Um, obviously, the oil companies, for example, it's not really in their best interest to allow technology that would make uh, synthetic gasoline for $1.50 a gallon to see the light of day. They'll do everything they can to stop it. Um, you saw that with the electric car. Um, whereas in a resource-based economy based on scientific principles, uh, any kind of situation like that where mankind is in danger or, you know, or even just inconvenienced can be treated with technical solutions rather than waiting around for a politician to fix it who's only going to fix it in the event that some company has decided they can benefit from that. Okay, well, um, just on these, the, the, this supercomputer system, I mean, I, I don't claim to fully grasp it. That's why I've got you on the show. Maybe mm -hmm. can you give us the basics of how these computers are supposed to, to work? What, how is everything allocated? Just give, give us the basics to a layman. Well, sure. Um, essentially, the computer is, is part of a systems approach to how we allocate resources. And basically what it does is it just, uh, it, it's kind of like a central nervous system to a society. It would gauge and, you know, and would keep track of resources as they're, you know, as, as basically in real time. Um, and then therefore make, uh, you know, make that information available to us. Um, in some cases, a lot of different aspects of our bureaucracy could be automated. Let me give you an example of that. Um, the two examples, the one I would give first of all is, uh, we're, first we're going to say there's a sewer system issue. And within the sewer, uh, there's a malfunction and it's causing problems and maybe one of the pipes needs to be replaced. In a market system, what would come about is a politician who is likely elected through lobbyist money gives a no-bid contract, you know, like Halliburton, for example, got for rebuilding Iraq since, you know, CEO Dick Cheney um, put them in that position. Uh, then that company, of course, is, you know, employed with people who are in labor unions who work by the hour, so they're not necessarily inclined to get the job done quickly. And then when they do it, of course, they're not really inclined to do an extremely good job because they want to be back here fixing the sewer within a reasonable amount of time or they can't take care of themselves. Um, you know, and, uh, of course, nobody knows anything about the politician um, being corrupted because uh, he took money at one point and there's not really any way to track that. It could also just be that he made a, a written or not non-written agreement with that company that he would get a job in the private sector when he was no longer the politician in charge of that particular sewer system. Now, in a resource-based economy model, uh, the computer would be rigged in such a way that um, when the problem in the sewer was detected, it uh, immediately worked on the problem. This is another difference. In many cases, problems you have with your local sewer or things of that nature in a, in a market system, well, um, those things, you've got to wait until somebody goes to a city council meeting to bother said politician with the issue. Um, but in a resource-based economy, the computer would, you know, an alarm would go off, state that this is where it needs to be fixed. Um, a robot would be deployed then um, would replace the issue and you know, basically replace the pipe and then would be done and no human being need ever even be bothered with it. And um, that's what we mean by computers handling a lot of our affairs. I mean, if people are really concerned about their freedom being infringed upon by a machine that fixed their sewer, we, by all means, you know, if they think it's an expression of their freedom to go down there and fix a sewer, we're not going to stop them. Um, but uh, another analogy that I would use would be a lot more simple is that machines essentially, you know, particularly like computers, would automate certain things for us, but we, of course, still are in control of, you know, what kind of quality we get out of that. So, for example, I presume that, you know, you have a thermostat in your house. Your thermostat regulates um, whether or not your air conditioning or your furnace comes on. 
Uh, you're not involved in the decision to turn it on throughout the day. It would be extremely tedious for you to do so. Um, and uh, that's another example of an automated system that we already have in our lives that controls critical aspects of our environment. Um, the same would be said of, say, the, the device in your refrigerator that regulates whether or not the cooling system comes on. Completely automated. You obviously don't have to walk in your refrigerator and flip a switch from time to time to keep your food from spoiling. So now we talk about applying that in a much bigger system. Now, the next stage that I usually use to kind of give people an example would be you could do it on a personal level. People live in their own little personal resource-based economies all the time. It's called off-the-grid living. Um, you have an electrical system, perhaps a solar array. You have your heating and cooling done through geothermal. This is all existing technology, I might add. Um, you know, you have a hydroponic system. You could probably automate a good deal of that with robotics. Um, the hydroponic system helps you develop your food, things of that nature. Um, and then you spend most of your time uh, every now and then, you know, monitoring the system to make sure everything's going fine. And all this stuff is plugged into a central computer system that becomes the nervous system of your property, of the area that you live. And um, the computer monitors everything, ensures that everything is fine. And if there's a problem that it can't handle, well, then it contacts you and says, hey, we've got a problem. Something wrong with the solar array. The robot can't fix it. You might want to go do something about that. That's essentially there's, there's what the role of the computer is. There's something you touched on a, a few moments ago in regard to, you know, humans maybe possibly not wanting a computer system to, to do a certain task. And mm -hmm. that kind of brings me to this idea that is often repeated out there that oh my god there's this massive computer it's going to be controlling everything and we everyone of course have grown up with sci-fi movies and a, it's kind of a scary thing to think about if you don't really look into it too deeply what what would you say to people to put their minds at ease that there's this this massive computer that's going to be controlling everything what if somebody from the new world order just sort of slips in behind the thing and turns the switch off how does you know how would you put people's minds at ease to that kind of thinking well, um, I will go back to, first of all, the analogy I gave about the politician. Um, if somebody does something corrupt in our current political system, we may never even know about it. Um, and in order to fix it, we have to hope that the system that's set up to ensure that corrupt people, those who are willing to take bribes, are always in charge of our fate. Uh, the New World Order, you know, in the concept that it, it basically exists in would be, you know, that would be the elite. It would be the Bilderbergers and the different people that people suggest. They're already controlling the planet in the current system. Um, and in the system that we're proposing, it would, be, it would be a technical issue. If somebody comes in and tampers with your computer, that's obvious. I don't need to wait four years to elect somebody else to fix that problem. I can go fix the computer. Um, the system, for example, could be obviously designed with several fail-safes involved. You know, if you're worried that somebody's going to mess with the computer system over in Russia, then you unplug from the network until that problem is solved. You know, these cities would be self-contained systems on their own, coexisting, but, you know, you're not going to die if somebody grabs the computer in Russia, then you just unplug. Um, just like any other system, if the network is compromised, then you unplug until you can fix the problem. And anybody who does something like that, because you can have a transparent system, you can generally track it to the source. Um, you know, and especially, you know, when I say transparent, you know, since all of this information is available for everyone to see, anybody getting into the system and doing something like that, it would be it would be visible to everyone else. As opposed to politics, where everything is just geared towards um, propaganda and spin and, and who has more, you know, control over the media. If you tamper with the system in which, you know, I'm using to survive it's pretty damn evident that there's a problem. You know, and when it comes to politics and a monetary system, 
you don't know there's a problem until it's really, really, really freaking obvious, and generally by then it's too late. And most people, under the sway of propaganda, they never know there's a problem. There are people who are still debating with me right now who support the Iraq War, as crazy as that is. <laughs> right. Well, um, do you ever worry about the movement being co-opted? You know, maybe the elite or whatever, the media jump on part of the message and steer it in a different direction? Or what happens if somebody building the zeitgeist has some other nefarious plan? Does that ever worry you? Do you think that's a, a childish way to look at things? No, no, it's not childish, but the way to solve that situation is not to develop a better system it, or not to you know say well we shouldn't have this system the the way to solve that is through critical and analytical thinking and in the idea of ideals of the venus project for example education involves critical and analytical thinking from the very beginning and our current school system it's not designed to make people being you know to be critical and analytical thinkers it's not designed to encourage people to reasonably and rationally question authority it's designed to dumb you down and to just, you know, convince you, well, here, have some American Idol, you know, or as the Romans would have said, bread and circuses. And, um, you know, you don't need to pay attention to what we're doing as long as you're taken care of. In a Venus Project society, oh, you know, we have to think about it, you know, within the Zeitgeist movement, for example, the kind of films that we pass around are the ones I've already suggested. Fox News, you know, Fox, you know, basically the movie exposing the what can be done to the media, you know, the Psy War is about what propaganda is all about. Human resources is about what, you know, brainwashing is all about. This is the kind of information that our movement thinks needs to just be in common circulation. And you're going to have a hell of a time trying to take over such a system in a position. First of all, there are two major things that you have to recognize. Every time a fascist takeover has ever taken place, it was always in one of two situations. Um, a situation of severe ignorance or a situation of severe scarcity the reason that Hitler was able to take over you know, the National Socialist Party in Germany was because everybody was in a destroyed economy. They were very angry. It was very easy to manipulate them, to blame it on somebody, i.e. the Jews. Um, it was very easy to convince them that this guy would be their savior. It was all based on irrational politics, the kind of stuff that in the, in the Venus Project, what the kind of world we suggest, if that guy went up and did speeches that were completely irrational, then we'd all be raising our hands going, hold on a second here, buddy. What you just said doesn't make a lot of sense, and frankly, I think you're trying to manipulate me. Maybe you should take off, is what would happen with the kind of citizens that we think you know, would, would come about in the world that we suggest, is that you know, critically, critical analytical thinking, the reason that I am the person I am is because my mother raised me with stories like, sometimes you have to question authority. They ordered a platoon of soldiers to ground zero after they tested the atomic bomb, um, you know, she then she of course also said it's all you know don't irrationally reject authority but tend to be willing to think about stuff like that when somebody's telling you what to do and and don't be afraid to speak out that's an example of a critical lesson that I received in a, as a child that many people never got and that's also an example of the lessons that would be crucial to our our development of society it's not just about advanced technological knowledge to empower people it's about also understanding that education empowers people and once it's no longer uh, associated with price tags, you'll find that people are much more educated. It's for all the uh, the screaming that the free marketeers do that, for example, we should, you know, privatize everything. There was a really good documentary put out by PBS that suggests you watch called um, Declining by Degrees, Higher Learning um, at Risk, Essentially Higher Education at Risk. And it's about how 
um, it, you know, in universities, being a good teacher actually is not a good way to get yourself promoted. It's not a good way to get a raise. Um, and in fact, if you're too good of a teacher, like if you fire students who are not learning, um, that's or not fire, but you know, fail them, you will get fired. It's a great way to lose your job. Even no matter how bad the students are, if you have to fail them, you know, because they care about tuition, they don't care about quality of education. You know, and that's another example of how when you get rid of the profit motive, a lot of things improve. Money plus virtually anything turns to excrement pretty damn quick. Bull excrement, more specifically, of course. The excrement <laughs> comes out of the back of cows. Tends to relate to anything that you put money into it. So how how do we implement the the, the Venus Project system? I mean, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree that it will be incredibly hard to win everybody over. So if we say we're basing this on resources of the planet, to me that implies everybody needs to take part to some degree if you want it to to work fully. How do we address people that want to be anarcho-primitivists? How do we address people that actually want a capitalist system? You know, I'd argue to death with people that like the current system, but how do we make this jump into a full full-blown Venus project? while keeping everybody happy and while educating everybody, it just seems incredibly complex to me. And, you know, I'm not saying that's a reason not to uh, go down this route. If it's something people believe in, then go for it. But, you know, how 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 do we implement this? Well, first of all, a major point that is not often pointed out, um, if you read Jacques Fresco's book, Force and Coercion Are Not Ever Implied, uh, or even suggested and certainly not condoned, um, you need to demonstrate to people that what you're doing works. And when you do that, um, not only will you have no trouble getting people to join you, you probably won't be able to keep them out. Even an excellent example of that, illegal immigration in the United States, people are willing to risk their lives and the lives of their families to come to the United States from countries that are, you know, that are destitute um, because they want a better way of life. And if we can demonstrate to people that we have a better way of life, then they'll come on their own. If they don't want to come, well, in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned anarcho-primitivists because I've had Charlie Beach from the Love Police on my show, and he's right. an anarcho-primitivist, and we talked about it, and what would happen is, is he could be free to go live in the forest, and in fact, in the world we suggest, uh, the forests would all be healed, and we'd be taking care of the ecology. He'd have an excellent time as an anarcho-primitivist now. In a capitalist system, he doesn't really have that freedom because you go into the forest, and obviously, other than the fact that it probably belongs to somebody, the water's dirty, the earth is dirty, the animals are dying, and the ecology's polluted. You can't even drink the water in most places in the United States because of pollution. So that's an example of how the current system does, is not very friendly to other isms. Um, you know, whereas our system is do whatever you want, man. There's no coercion. As long as you don't harm anybody, we don't care what you're doing. You know, and in fact, uh, the example that Jock brought up was the Amish. Um, you know, the Amish, due to their religious beliefs, will never want to live in a high-technology society. So he said, well, they're free to do whatever we want. Um, we'll provide for them if they ever need it. And more to the point, you know, if for, and this is an advantage that Charlie saw. You know, if he gets injured somewhere, you know, swinging from tree to tree, and he needs a hospital, we'll, we'll help him. Those were his exact words, I might add. You know, we'll help him. You know, if, if you have a disaster, like a flood or something, we'll, we'll help you. You know, we'll be in a position to technologically come and assist you. Um, that's the attitude that we have is, is that we feel that we can demonstrate that this works and that if people see it, then they want to be part of it. And if some people don't, I mean, I could tell you that even if the Venus Project existed today, I know I would go visit anarcho-primitivists because I have, I have a love of that idea too. Um, I'm Native American. 
the only reason I don't personally suggest it as a, as a solution for the world is that unless somebody has technology somewhere who's benevolent, it would just be too easy for somebody to decide to redevelop weapons and rule the world. So, um, but it, with you know, with us existing, obviously they wouldn't really be able to get away with that quite as easily because there would be people with access to technology who could protect them. Um, so that's that's basically the attitude about it. Is you know, we we provo we provide that you know this is what we can do, um, and as far as the transition is concerned, you know, work goes from being to you know producing garbage that is going to end up in landfills, work instead becomes, let's build an infrastructure so that I don't have an electric bill anymore, so that I don't have a gas bill anymore, so that I don't have a food bill anymore. You know, my work now is about becoming sustainable. I'm going to go to work at a factory that's building the solar array rather than working to pay an electric bill to some company that probably inflated the price of it, you know, the cost of electricity. Um, that's an example of how work transforms initially in the transition, and then after that, you know, the, the all work essentially becomes uh, the goal of not working. <laughs> essentially, let's build infrastructure that lowers the, the need for work as much as possible and produces the highest quality standard of living that we can achieve through science. So what are some of the uh, projects and things you've got going that are... I, I guess testing this system. Are, are there any? Um, is there any land bought anywhere that you're developing anything on? Have you got any, you know, um, inventors and creative people on board that are um, properly mapping these things out, or is it all just an idea at this point? Well, there are people from many different walks of life involved in what we're doing, and some of them are involved in other projects. Uh, the Zeitgeist movement itself is, at least at this point, focused on trying to have you know more situations like this, where we're discussing this solution with people to help them break out of the you know the mold, so to speak, and to begin you know to get them to begin to understand that your freedom is not in being a better capitalist or being a better consumer. It's in you know being somebody who's off the grid and you know is not dependent on anything else, who is relying on those self-sustaining systems. We need to get people thinking along that line. Um, but there are people, for example, within the movement who are involved in the open source ecology movement. You can check that out. It's openfarmtech.org. Um, there's a Ph.D. in physics who works there. His name is Marcin Jakubowski, and he spends a lot of time developing open source technology for sustainable systems. Um, there's uh, Douglas Millette, uh, who worked uh, as a system engineer in the space shuttle program. Um, he's working on designing an automated hydroponic farming system um, to demonstrate that you know, we can in fact feed people who are, you know, who are in situations where they're starving. Um, so there are professionals involved in different projects. It's just not what the Zeitgeist movement itself is focused on at this moment. Um, and when we're finished, we're hoping that, you know, maybe it won't matter how much money that we would need to do something. Maybe by then we'll have had enough people on board that we, we'll just gather resources and go start building it. Because the other thing that could be a problem of us trying to do it in the current system is the market system is not going to like us very much, and it's probably going to go out of its way to sabotage any efforts we make. Um, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a failed commune. Um, they had developed some kind of special farming system. I forget the name of it, but the the, the farming system uh, burned down mysteriously, and it destroyed that commune. And there are a lot of people who believe that um, that that it was sabotage. That you know, people who lived in the system outside of it were trying to ensure that. You know, nobody ever figured out that that kind of living could ever work. Um, you know, so that's one of the reasons why we feel there needs to be a massive value change before we can really switch to this direction. And that's why we're working on trying to get people to, 
you know, be able to break the shackles of consumerism, to be able to break the shackles of, you know, propaganda and, and things of that nature that people have allowed to pollute their minds, um, so that people can freely think of a world that will truly make them free. Do you ever worry that it might be too late in the uh, in regard to you know a lot of people are starting to 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 rebel now. There's brewing revolutions everywhere. It could quite possibly come to quite a disastrous um, time with you know maybe a world war or something of that nature. How how does the Venus Project fit into that? I mean, do you think time is an issue or? Could you know things all collapse and rebuild, and you come back at a later date? Well, um, as Jacques pointed out in Z3, it is one of our worries that we could reach the point of no return. Like where this is another problem with the market system is the market system will will continue to use resources irrespective of any of the consequences of that resource use, because the absolute goal is to raise profit margins. It's not to protect the planet and. We are worried that if uh, enough people don't realize that this system is on its way to destruction, that we will end up, you know, it's it, one of two bad things will happen. We will either end up ruining the planet to the point where nobody can live here. You see, this is another major issue of freedom people have. It's like they, they don't understand that we do not have the freedom to use resources and destroy the ecology enough to make the planet uninhabitable. I mean, we do have that freedom, but we don't need to worry about other people coercing us to stop. The planet will kill us. That'll be the end of that. And we don't have the freedom to utilize resources beyond their capacity. You know, once we have used up all the coal, there's no more coal. And all the, you know, libertarian ideals you have about your freedom of choice are out the window at that point. Um, you know, once we've polluted the water to the point that it's not drinkable, uh, then nobody gets to drink water anymore. And it doesn't matter how many, you know, lobbyists or how many different you know, Austrian economists you quote, you still can't drink water anymore and you're going to die. And that that's the, the force of coercion. It's not going to come from us. It's going to come from the fact that the world will be unlivable and that will kill everybody on it. And I, and I do worry that we'll reach that point of no return. I really do. But I'm also worried that perhaps we, you know, we survive the collapse and then instead of realizing, you know, it's probably a good idea that we don't do this again, the people instead are going to try something like rebooting capitalism or some fascist dictatorship will take over, or you know any number of other solutions that could be proposed. Because it's after collapses that new ideas are proposed. I mean, the the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, brought about the attempt to have, uh, you know, to try to have communism. The American Revolution was an example of a collapse, you know, on a minor scale, anyway, as far as collapses are concerned. But a major catastrophic event that led to the uh, the the uh, advent of, you know, the, the democratic republic system that you see in the United States. Um, and we're hoping that maybe after all of this is over, people will recognize that we need to try something different this time, because one of the things that is very consistent about money systems, and this is another criticism that I have of, you know, free market capitalists, is they always say, well, if we just turn to a sound currency, we'll be fine. And my answer to them is, again, you know, again, I've watched the Money Masters. It's like three and a half hours of how many different ways the money systems get well, corrupted. Neil, Neil, I'm going to have to stop you there. We've only got this hour. Um, it's been a really enlightening interview. Um, I, I thank you for coming on. You've been introduced to the Resistance Radio audience now, so maybe some of the other hosts will want to bring you on to have a, a deeper discussion about some other things. But thank you for coming on the show, and I'll hopefully talk to you again sometime in the future. No problem. Tell the other hosts they can get a hold of me at v-radio.org. 
Okie dokie, thanks for coming on. No problem. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. That was Neil Kernan of v-radio.org. Don't forget that Cookie will be on at 9.30 with the Rabbit Hole show. I'll be back on Sunday with the wide shut video version on YouTube. But until then, take care.